it's a great pleasure to introduce Cathy Jo Martin, um, who's a professor of political science at Boston University. Um, and she, she has worked on a huge range of things. She's one of the leaders of the, this field of ours called comparative political economy. Um, among other things, she's, she's a little bit smug at the moment because she's just come here from Denmark with an honorary doctorate. So she's is very, very nice indeed and hugely deserved. Her, I, I, when, I sort of, when I sort of think about it, I think that her, her, ma her major contribution is in um, the study of business interests and business, business preferences in, in politics. She, she wrote a very, a very well-known book called The Political Construction of Business Interests, which won a very deserved APSA, APSA prize. And um, so this is something of a switch in subject for her. And her words were, she switched when current events overwhelmed her and she decided that literature was a much nicer thing to study than business preferences. Kathy. Well, first of all, thank you so much, David, for that kind introduction. Um, can everybody hear me okay? Great. So uh, I'm going to talk today about liter literature and education. And uh, I'm going to talk about the two things in Denmark and Britain. And I have to say, I've been thinking about Denmark for a long time. I went to Denmark when I was 17. I was uh, an exchange student. They asked me where I wanted to go. I said Brazil or Italy, and they sent me to Denmark. So I looked it up in the encyclopedia and found that it was not the capital of Norway, as all Americans think. Um, <laughs> but since that time, uh, Denmark has surprised me in many ways. And the Danish education system has surprised me. So uh, when I was in Denmark in 2000, 2001, I was there with my husband and two children, and at the end of the year, my kids who were three and five uh, were going to go in their, their preschool to Colony, and Colony is one of these things where all the little preschoolers go and camp in a little summer camp kind of place and learn to uh, peel potatoes and, and cook and do little preschooler activities. And the five-year-old was all about it. He, he was excited to be there. Uh, he told me he didn't even cry, which I was deeply touched because I thought he meant he didn't cry when he left and he actually meant he didn't cry when it was time to come home. So that's how he felt about his family. Uh, but the three-year-old, we were a little concerned about. Uh, and I said to the preschool teacher, you know, he's never been away from home before. And she looked at me with all seriousness, and she says, well, it's about time. <laughs> and that's the Danish welfare state for you. Uh, make sure they get them into that group mindset early. And so understanding Danish education has been a bit of a challenge. And Danish and British <coughs> education is challenging in several ways. First of all, 
Britain is, of course, the leader of industrialization. Uh, a wonderful, uh, a wonderfully technologically advanced country in the 17 and 1800s, um, and yet it has very, very late public mass education. It doesn't come about until 1870. It comes about after the Second Reform Act, uh, when one British uh, MP famously said, we must educate our future masters. Um, Britain also creates a one-track secondary education system. David Saskus, uh, in I think the most cited book ever uh, on varieties of capitalism, um, has famously argued that Britain is very good at general education, but not particularly good at producing specific skills because it doesn't have a, a very big vocational education track. Uh, so there's a lot of emphasis on educational uniformity in Britain. In fact, um, the Brits started doing things that Margaret Thatcher did in 1988. Uh, so there was a, a, something called the Revenue Code of 1862 when they decided that they were going to tie financing to student test scores. They had curricula that were specified all of the stuff that we think about the neoliberal turn in education at the end of the 20th century, Britain was doing in the middle of the 19th century. Now in comparison, Denmark, which is a shitty little country on the periphery of Europe, I forgot I was on tape, uh, decides that it's gonna have mass education early. It creates the earliest mass education system in the world. 1814, this is in, in, unless you include Prussia. And it's an agricultural backwater. In fact, they just inserted them at the end of the 18th century. So having this early mass education system is pretty amazing. They uh, um, also create a multi-track secondary education system in the early 20th century. So the same time that Britain decides to have a unitary educational track. Denmark creates a very strong academic track in the gymnasium and also a very strong vocational education track, even though they don't have a lot of industrial workers. Uh, they also have a lot of educational pluralism. So uh, there's a real emphasis on learning by doing. Communities are able to decide their own educational curricula. People are given a lot of autonomy in the classroom, so when the Brits are specifying education curricula, the Danes have this let a thousand flowers bloom attitude. And yet this educational pluralism results in socioeconomic equality. So you have this real paradox. And what I suggest is that the reason for this paradox is that they're very different educational cultures in the two countries. So Britain has a very individualistic educational culture. So how many of you guys have read John Stuart Mill? Okay, a lot of us have read John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill, of course, thinks that education is the making of the man. Education is an essential part of self-development self-actualization in the current parlance. And so because education is so important to individual self-development, 
there is a sense that everybody should master a uniform educational curricula. And that this educational curricula uh, consists of great books that we all should read and it will help us evolve into our higher order selves. So there's a very big emphasis on classical education for the perfect individual. That's part of why they create a uniform secondary school. Uh, it's mainly for the upper classes. Um, um, this is created in, in the early 20th century, and it's a long time before the working class gets much secondary education. As I mentioned before, they have inspection regimes. And mass education, primary education, only expands to the working class after the Reform Act because they don't worry as much about the working class having uh, this self-development. But interestingly enough, when there is this discussion about secondary education and even primary education for the masses, there's a big emphasis, again, on what the working class needs to know. So there's some sense by progressives that they don't want a working class education for the working class because they want to make sure that the working class gets this benefit of self-actualization that the upper classes get. Now Denmark's a completely different culture. It has more of a collectivist educational culture. So education in Denmark is really about creating a strong society. They don't want education as much for individuals as they want education to make sure that society gets what it needs. And for that reason, each person is supposed to learn a trade so that each person can contribute. Uh, there's a great book by a guy named Ludwig Holberg, the father of Danish literature. And Ludwig Holberg writes a, uh, a book called Niels Klimt's Journey Under the Earth. Niels Klimt, by the way, uh, is influential to uh, Tolkien. Tolkien is a big Holberg fan, as well as a, a, a student of the old Nordic myths. And, uh, and so Niels Klimt goes down to this Pontu, is a, a, a planet in a galaxy that's under the Earth. So Niels falls through a cave. He ends up on Pontu. Pontu is populated by the tree people. And uh, Niels Klump is very proud of himself. He's gone to school in Copenhagen. He's gotten a doctorate. Uh, he's very smug about it. I'm not really smug about my honorary doctorate. David just was teasing me. Uh, but Niels Klump is smug about it. And he keeps getting beaten down by the people of Pontu. They keep saying, you know, you're not as big as you think you are. And uh, what really matters isn't the, the kind of uh, flim-flam of education. It's the real substantive stuff. So Niels Klim at one point tries to talk the people of Pontu into giving him a good job. He, he gets a job of runner because he's the only person on the planet that has legs and he can move faster. And he says, I'm smarter than this. And they say, first of all, you're not smarter than this. And second of all, even if you were, it doesn't matter because what we need is what's good for the state. Individual merit is okay. But what we need is what's good for the state. And so you need to learn to contribute to what's good for society. So in Denmark, then, there's this learning by doing. 
this idea that everybody does what they're best at. And by the way, another thing that Holberg, another idea Holberg had was in the perfect society, everyone learned one task, one trade. They didn't learn everything. They weren't the Renaissance man. You learned one trade and you learned it well and you contributed to society. So a completely different idea. So in Denmark, there's this big emphasis on learning by doing and local autonomy so that local communities can figure out how to fill all of their needs. Now, cultural arguments are difficult to make. One could say that they're the third rail of political science, or they have been for a long time. If you think about the old versions of cultural arguments, immediately Sam Huntington comes to mind, right? And Sam Huntington has these ideas about political culture. Let's make the world safe for democracy, right? And America's the best. We're the best political culture. It's part of the American imperialist mandate. And uh, that's coming back into fashion, by the way. Um, not really, Donald. Well, if I go down that T word whole rabbit hole, then we'll never get back to my argument. Uh, but uh, the old versions of culture were sort of essentialist. They were tautological. Uh, they were uh, connected to these political agendas. And they were also very hard to test empirically. So you have these, these arguments about culture, and it was like people do these for cultural reasons, but nobody really knew what culture was, and nobody could really tie culture to individual motivation. Now, more recently, especially cultural sociologists have made great strides in the study of culture. Uh, they envision culture very specifically as a toolkit of symbols and narratives that shape our strategies and ascribe meaning to things. Uh, Michelle Lamont has written uh, that about repertoires of evaluation, suggesting that different cultures have different ways of evaluating things, and these are linked to these symbols and narratives. Uh, Lamont says that these repertoires of evaluation may appear in all countries, but they're unevenly distributed, so that some countries have more of a kind of symbol and narrative than other countries. Uh, nonetheless, I would suggest to you that there's not been enough done in empirical studies of culture. And we also don't understand the micro-foundations of how culture works very well. And so that's been the task that I've assigned to myself. How do cultural influences work? And so my theoretical ambitions are to look at how cultural actors and artifacts contribute to different areas of public policy and political development. And I actually think that writers are understudied political actors. Political scientists don't pay a lot of attention to authors of fiction uh, because they're not the obvious people that are involved in policy making. And yet I think these authors are really important to policy making, especially in the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, maybe not so much today. Today we have so many different influences of, on, uh, on uh, of the way we think about the world, um, the internet, uh, TV, radio, movies, etc. There are tons of cultural influences. 
But if you go back to the 19th century and the 18th century, these authors were really important people. So Dickens was a veritable rock star. He comes back on the ship from America, and the dock workers uh, see the ship approaching, and they yell up to him, whatever happened to Little Nell? You know, and the whole country is just waiting for the next installment. And so these guys have a lot of political influence. So I try to think systematically about how it is exactly that writers get involved. And I'd suggest to you that they get involved in three ways. And the first way is as political activists. So writers are actually, fiction writers are actually much more involved in policy-making processes than we know about or we give them credit for. So going back to Ludwig Holberg, Holberg uh, was this kind of crazy guy who walked all over Europe. He literally walked all over Europe. And he came back to Denmark and he decided that he wanted to change the Danish education system. He was irritated by the fact that Danes studied in Latin and they memorized a lot of Latin texts and they had very little, um, very little attention paid to traditional Danish literature and there wasn't a lot of learning by doing. So Holberg decides he's going to give his money to a very important school called the Sorrow Academy. And the Sorrow Academy is a school that trains estate owners' kids who become the future statesmen of Denmark. And, Sor and, and Holberg gets the Sorrow Academy to hire his students. And at Sorrow, they start implementing these educational innovations that, that Holberg believes in, such as each person learning one trade and learning by doing. And this has a kind of ripple effect. This is about 30 or 40 years before Rousseau writes Emile. And, he, and actually, Holberg has a big influence on some of the German uh, educational theorists like Bazadel, who we normally point to when we think about the emergence of this set of educational ideas. Uh, Matthew Arnold was very involved behind the scenes in education making. His brother-in-law was William Forster, who was the architect of the 1870 Education Act. And Arnold would look at drafts of the act. He, had, he wrote constantly in the newspaper, uh, trying to influence the way people thought about education. He was a real educational activist. There was a group of writers that were mobilized by, uh, by Forster and working toward trying to get this passed. So they were kind of like educational activists, very much linked to the members of parliament who were working from the inside. And in fact, a lot of writers were also members of parliament. So, uh, so at a second level then, Writers shape the preferences of other actors. So even if they're not themselves involved in the nitty-gritty political battles, they are influencing the public in important ways. So Dickens, again, is this obvious person who has an enormous impact both on our cognitive understanding of educational problems but also the emotional salience of problems. So Dickens writes this snotty letter to Senior Nassau, who is the uh, architect of the English Poor Law of 1832. And he tells, and, he, and Dickens hates Nassau. And he tells him, 
my novels have 20,000 times the force that my journalistic writings have. So Dickens knows that he's writing these novels and he's especially against child labor laws and his vivid portrayal of child labor uh, really hits against uh, the, the kind of thinking of some of these other elites at the time. So these emotional appeals are really important in heightening attention. Uncle Tom's Cabin probably didn't start the Civil War, but it certainly made people recognize the abuses of slavery. And authors also put neglected issues on the agenda. It was a way to influence elites before democracy, a way to kind of filter public opinion up. Now the third way though, which I think is uh, something that I'm contributing, is something that I refer to as the cultural constraint. And at the cultural constraint level, authors are pur purveyors of cultural narratives and symbols that they inherit from the past and they rework for contemporary problems. So these authors all study literature, they all read literature. They, the literature, the literary symbols and narratives kind of go into their brains. And when they're creating their new products, they draw from these symbols and narratives in their own work. And so in a way, it's like policy legacies only the policy legacies are going through the mind and through these fictional forms. So it's something that authors pass down from one generation to the next. Now again, these symbols and narratives that may appear in all countries, but they're unevenly distributed. So it's not a deterministic argument at the level of the cultural constraint. It's not that you can say, okay, this cultural constraint made this particular policy happen in this case. Uh, the canon's constantly evolving. Great authors, in fact, matter a lot. They shape literature in new directions. But we should be able, if there is this cultural constraint, to observe broad cross-national differences in the distribution of these symbols and narratives. And these broad cross-national differences should resonate with policy differences. So the idea is that we can kind of, in a way, disprove the null hypothesis that culture doesn't matter. So if you can observe these differences, then you can believe that culture at least resonates with these political differences. So what I do with this work is I build these corpora, these bodies of national literatures, and I analyze them using machine learning techniques and computational text analyses. And so I build corpora, in this case I have seven countries so far. This project is gonna kill me, I predict. Uh, I built corpora, I have 562 British works and 521 Danish ones. And in the case of Denmark, I started with the National Archive of Danish Literature. They sent me the full text files and I augmented them with some things that were available on Hathi, by Hathi Trust, which is a repository of full text files in America. And in the British case, I went to Wikipedia and I got lists of great works 
and authors of the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. And the only choices I really made were in the British case, because in the other countries, I basically used all the texts I could obtain that in the full text file version. And in the British case, I just tried to make sure that I had something from every author that was mentioned and that all the great works were on there. So to the extent possible, I tried to leave it to the experts. And so I took these full text files and I constructed snippets of text around education words. And then I calculated word frequencies and did topic modeling inside the snippets of text to see what authors talk about. So one of my papers is called The Things We Talk About When We Talk About Poverty. Uh, apologies to Raymond Carver. So uh, that's what I do to get at the cultural constraint. And that's the part I'm going to talk to you about today. But I should also mention that I'm writing a book about this topic, about the evolution of education systems in Britain and Denmark. So another part is to construct case studies and stories about how authors and policymakers interact to produce education systems and the kind of networks and struggles and political ins and outs of those, of those uh, episodes using uh, archival research. And I look at the late 18th century uh, at a time when education is created in Denmark, mass education in Britain develops the church schools. In the mid-19th century, when uh, education is finally mass education, public education is finally created in Britain, and Denmark expands private free schools, and the early 20th century when the secondary schools are, um, are built. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that there are, a lot, there are a lot more references to education in Denmark than in Britain. So education, Den, I'm sorry, Denmark is the green, uh, Britain is the blue, and these are a bunch of words that have to do with education. And the wor way I get the words is I pick some concepts and then I went to online dictionaries and I got all the synonyms that I could. Uh, so I did that with most of the words, and then I also coded the top 200 words in a number of major novels, and then coded them into categories, and used all the categories in the novels. So I tried to be sort of anal retentive with the word selection. So you can see that especially in 1720 to 1770, there are a lot more words about education in Denmark than in Britain. And this continues in 1770 to 1820. This is a period when Denmark creates mass education. In 1820 to 1870, Britain is catching up. Uh, and in 1870 to 1920, uh, they're almost the same. Denmark is still significantly higher, but they're, they're pretty close. And another thing I should mention, which I've noticed, is that these authors have a tendency to write about stuff, and then when a reform is passed, they turn to other issues. So this is revealed in this chart, and this is Denmark. And so you can see there's a lot of talk about education, kind of drops off, but then in the period in before, about 20 years before 
the Education Act of, two, of 19, sorry, 1814, there's a crescendo of writing about education. And then once they've dealt with it, then they kind of drop off and they start talking about other things. So if you looked at industrialization words in Denmark, that would be way up here at the end of the 19th century. They're not really thinking about education as much. Now, the same thing happens in Britain. So there's kind of a zigzagging bit. But then you have a crescendo of talk about education until around 1870 when the uh, reform is passed in Britain and then it falls off again. Now, you also see massive differences in education in Britain and Denmark on individualism. So if my cultural argument is correct, Britain, the individualistic educational culture, should have a lot more references to individualism than Denmark. And the earliest British and Danish novels show differences in the locus of control for fixing problems and also in norms of conformity. So young English boys make it on their own. Robinson Crusoe. Who could be more individualistic than Robinson Crusoe? I and mean, he lives completely outside of society, literally. Uh, he has individualistic uh, defiance of social norms. So at the beginning of the novel, his dad says to him, you know, stay in the middle class. It's a comfortable class to be in. And, and, and Robinson Crusoe literally leaves town without saying goodbye to his parents, which I, as a mother of two sons, I find deeply offensive. And he goes off and he, he enters the slave trade. He makes a lot of money in the slave trade. And then he ends up on an island and he lives there for 25 years. So he's a really, he's the original uh, man on an island. Uh, David Copperfield, who cannot love David Copperfield? David Copperfield's the sweetest guy in the world. But I just want to read to you a, uh, a little passage about David Copperfield, which I think is very telling. David Copperfield believes that he is responsible for his own success. He very much feels that he's the master of his own success. So he says, I never could have done what I have done without the habits of punctuality, order, and diligence, without the determination to concentrate myself on one object at a time, no matter how quickly its successor should come upon its heels. Whatever I have tried to do in life, I have tried with all my heart to do well. Now, David Copperfield's very different from Valdemar Krona, who is a protagonist in a novel written about the same time. And Valdemar Krona is this bumbling idiot, basically, who uh, tries to go off on his own. He disregards his father. He makes all kinds of mistakes. And he's finally kind of pounded down into conforming to society helped by a good Danish girl from the country who kind of steers him in the right direction and the guidance of the village pastor. And he becomes, at the end of the book, a happy person. So both Danish and British novels have uh, uh, novels of accountability where people are held responsible for themselves. But in Brit even those kinds of novels, uh, British novelists uh, describe young men's coming to become more accountable as an inner psychological process. And in Denmark, it's society pounding them down. 
what happens to Niels Klim. So if you look at individualism, again, you get a similar story to what you would expect. So here are individual words in Denmark. Here are the individual words in Britain. And individualism is just off the charts. There's an enormous difference between these two countries. Uh, feeling words. And you can think of feeling words as a way of describing people's inner lives. And, um, and, and, Dana, and British novels are full of agony and suffering and feelings. Um, I love this, this play by Coolidge called Remorse. And so in Remorse, the, uh, the hero's brother uh, is in love with the hero's wife. And the hero goes off to war. And in the meantime, the brother tries to seduce the wife. And she, of course, is virtuous. So she makes sure it doesn't happen. But the hero tries to kill his brother while he's off at war. He actually hires someone to try to kill his brother. Well, the brother comes home. And the brother, instead of taking revenge, decides that he wants to save the soul of his brother. And so it's all about how the good brother tries to save the soul of the bad brother and create remorse. And at the end of the novel, the bad brother dies, but he's reached salvation. Now that's very different from uh, a Hokan Jarl in Denmark, which is written by a great poet, Olenschleider, who is uh, the kind of the greatest poet of the era, just like kind of a, analogous to Coleridge in fame and fortune. And in Hokan Jarl, there's this evil guy named Hokan Jarl, and he wants to be king, and he tries to engineer it. There's somebody else who has a right to be king who doesn't really want to be king because he's too humble, and he just wants to farm and be happy, but he feels compelled to rise up and accept the mantle of kingdom because it's his responsibility to society. At the end of the novel, Holkan Jarl, who's despised by everybody because he tries to steal their women and he likes slavery better than his peers, uh, Holkan Jarl is killed and the peasants rise up against him. And at the end of the novel, in the thing, which is this group, uh, they choose the other good guy to be king. So completely different, uh, completely different book. Uh, not much inner life in Danish novels. Now this gets us to national identities and goals. And uh, there are a lot more references, as I just said, to nation, king, the people, patriotism, state building, etc., in Denmark than Britain. And you see this uh, in the governance words. So Denmark has more, these are statistically significant, uh, more references to governance words than Britain. And it's only at the end of the 19th century when Britain is starting to think about uh, governance. And Denmark, the state is becoming less important because the system of industrial relations that David and I wrote about a lot in my prior uh, life starts to become more important. So industrial self-regulation becomes the norm, and there's less interest in the state during that period. But you see higher uh, references to the state. So I'm going to pick it up a little bit, because I don't want you guys to get bored. But society words is, an, is another story. So here is uh, Denmark, here's Britain. Uh, Denmark has a lot more references to society. 
again until the end of the 19th century. And what's going on here, I think, is that Britain suddenly realizes that with democratization, it has to pay more attention to society. And so you start seeing Danish authors and all of these uh, socialist writers talking more about society. People like William Morris and uh, 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 News from Nowhere, very interested in building society. Upper class words and education snippets are a lot more important in Britain uh, than in Denmark. Denmark's blue, the Britain is the green. Uh, worker frequencies are much more important in Denmark than Britain. Um, Here's the inspection regimes. Uh, now, I just want to show you two more slides that I think are really fascinating. But first of all, I just want to show you this slide. This is just tracking the Danish word give and the English word give, which is the same word. And you can see that they track pretty closely. And I include this to show you that there's not a real big uh, difference due to language. Now, the, the final slide I want to show you, the final two slides, I find fascinating. Because this, this slide shows the way that people talk about labor. So each cluster is a group of British authors, each, each color, I should say. And it looks at how they talk about labor. And so there's something like eight different colors represented on this map. And you would kind of expect that to be the case because Britain is a very fragmented society, right? There's a lot of oppositional views. There's, it's not a consensual society where everybody sort of agrees on uh, broad goals and the way to understand public policy problems. Denmark, however, you basically have one big color, one big group represented by the brown with a few outliers. And so I think the thing that's interesting about this is it suggests that the consensual orientation that one finds in Denmark is embedded in the way that authors view the world. That the way the authors view the world is manifest in their language. And that's kind of surprising to me. I mean, it's not really surprising. It's what I predicted, which is why I did the analysis. But it's surprising to me that it worked out as well as it did. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this is just on topics, but I think I won't talk about that. Um, these are D Danish topics and British topics. But I just want to conclude with some conclusions. OK, so the first thing that I'd like to say is I feel like this work does, in fact, explain the education paradox. Cultural artifacts help us to understand why you get this strange pattern in educational development where the industrial front runners uh, do education last and these backwaters do education much earlier. Differences in the views of the individual in society, the mandates for education, uh, and political institutions all come through loud and clear in these analyses. And I've written three different papers so far on this topic. This one came out in World Politics last year, if anybody's interested in reading it. Uh, but you see really profound differences in all of these national corpora. 
And what's kind of surprising to me is that the differences really do hone care closely to what their theory would suggest that we would find. Uh, so another paper I have is on the evolution of industrial relations systems in Sweden, the Netherlands, Britain, and Denmark. And the coordinated countries all have much more consensual ways of talking about labor dating back to the 18th century, even though the Netherlands has a completely different economic structure from Sweden and Denmark. So these differences in the individual role in society, uh, mandates for education, and political institutions come through loud and clear. I think it also suggests that this like intuition that I had about where education comes from in Denmark is true. That social investment in education is important to nurture a strong society. And in fact, you see the social investment. I didn't do social investment words in this presentation, but you see strong uh, evidence of social investment conceptions going way back. So again, in the poverty snippets, People talk about the poor in terms of skills going way back to the early 1700s. In Britain, they talk about individual charity. So we know that welfare for kind of social investment is really different from welfare for charity in modern Britain and Denmark. Those sentiments go way back. So equality in Denmark, in some ways, is kind of a side effect of this investment in society. In Denmark, you can't leave marginal workers behind because if you do, you're detracting from society. And that's why you get a system that has economic, I'm sorry, educational inequality, but socioeconomic equality. Now in Britain, it's very different because in Britain, you can just say, let's create equality of educational opportunity. Let's give everybody the chance. Let's do No Child Left Behind, which is the American version of this. And the problem is not everybody's going to be able to take advantage of these educational opportunities in the same way. We're not built the same way. All the people in this room are great at academics, but not everybody is. And so if you have this idea of giving everybody opportunities to thrive in these academic uh, atmospheres, and they don't thrive, and you just blame the victim, you can get away with that in a country where education is about the individual rather than society. But it means that you leave a lot of people out of the loop. So this produces socioeconomic inequality. So I also think that this work contributes to the study of culture. And I have another, actually this is the fourth paper, forget how many I have going right now. I have another paper where I look at the role of cultural artifacts in institutional change processes. And I suggest that culture, in some sense, constitutes a source of continuity at moments of discontinuous and individual change. Because authors reproduce these, in, these cultural symbols and narratives even when their paradigm shifts. And so these new ideas may sweep the world. Everybody embraces active labor market policy, which is something I studied in my last book. But the way active labor market policy develops in Denmark is all about like 
getting uh, the long-term unemployed back into the workforce that works really well. Um, you invest in skills, you upskill people. The way it happens in, Den in Britain, it's very marginal. Uh, it's kind of a residual welfare state program. And I think part of the reason for that has to do with these cultural interpretations of public policy and new ideas and how to implement them. I think cultural artifacts matter deeply to the evolution of political economies and welfare states. So coordinated and liberal market economies have really different cultural conceptions, symbols, and narratives going way back to the early 1700s. In fact, they predate the institutional architecture of industrial democracies. So we make arguments about labor movements, we make arguments about uh, business associations, we make arguments about party structures. You can observe these cultural differences before any of those kinds of things develop. Now granted, there are also pre-modern institutions in place, and I think those cultural conceptions and those pre-modern institutions go hand in hand and kind of reinforce one another. So I see this argument as, as supporting varieties of capitalism, not contradicting that. And I want David Saskis to know that. <laughs> However, I think it is really interesting to think about what culture does. I think that this new database and method gives us a new way to think about cultural differences, and I'd love for more people to be doing this work. But finally, I think this has implications for social renewal. Because today we're at a point where there's been an enormous breakdown of understanding and shared conceptions. In America, more than perhaps any place else, we are so deeply polarized. And part of why we're so polarized has to do with the fact that we're in an, this era of rampant neoliberalism that accentuates individualism. And I think in, neoliberalism is just plain mean. And the liberal countries are the epicenter of individualism because it goes way back in this cultural fabric. But I don't think rampant individualism and neoliberalism is the way to move forward. I think we have to get in touch with the fact that we've got to think about what's happening to our societies. We have to think about what's happening when we have rising inequality, when we have such a desperate desperate group of people who have no place in society and our neoliberal uh, norms allow us to just dismiss these marginal groups. We gave them opportunities, they didn't take the opportunities, so they don't matter. So I think the social democratic way is the only way out of this current conundrum. We have to get back in touch with a sense of what society needs and we should build political messages to emphasize a strong society. I'll stop now. Well, well, thank you. Thank you very, very much, Kathy Jo. I think this is, um, I think this is profoundly original, what you're what you're doing, and I can see this is going to, I can see sort of program which you're putting in place is going to have a really significant uh, effect. It certainly ties into all sorts of things like Alan McFarlane who writes about 
individualism in the in England going back to the 13th century. Uh, it ties in with a lot of work going back to the German Middle Ages about how German society is organised. So let me first of all say, very exciting and really, really original and fantastic. So we've let's we've we've got some time now for questions and. So, if you'd like to, yes, Kai, Nikki. Ah, okay. Well, thank you, thank you very much for this talk. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I love it. But I, I have one question about this role of the author and whether they can really influence, well, the <laughs> social agenda, or whether they're just following something that is already there. So, yeah. I mean, with your data, of course, what you have is the novels that ultimately succeeded because, uh, I mean, these are, of course, the novels that we now get in full print and where, you know, the experts say that have been influential and so on. So it could well be that what we're really seeing here is, aha, so these are the novels that succeeded because they picked up on something that was already there in society. So an alternative reading of what's going on is, this is really a fantastic diagnostic tool, rather than, I think, the... Well, I mean, I think this is in contrast to the story that you, I think, were spinning, that in a way, you know, these, these authors are sort of agenda-setting and that they're kind of changing the discourse in society. So that was my first question. If I may, a very quick second question. I was wondering why you look at novels and not at plays, because it seems to I me do. that you do look at plays. Okay, so that question is already answered. Thank you. Can I just, can I answer this one at a time? Yes, yes, do, absolutely. <clears throat> if you don't mind. So I think this is a fabulous question. And uh, one of the points that I try to make is I'm, so most of the people who look at authors' influence, like Wendy Griswold, who I just adore her work, uh, but she tries to look, she tries to make a causal argument by saying that the author has to have an intention to influence, uh, you have to receive the um, cultural artifact and you have to interpret it. And, and so in some ways with the case studies I'm trying to do some of that, but I'm really suspicious about making causal arguments. And the reason is that there are many, many influential authors. Uh, you have organic intellectuals and you also have revolutionaries. And you have a lot of, uh, so a lot of kind of different voices. So I want to be careful about saying author X, you know, Matthew Arnold is why the 1870 Education Act ended up the way it did. I think he had a big influence, but I'm not going to say that's the only show in town. But what I think is really fascinating is that these authors, even when they're trying to accomplish certain kinds of social goals, their words undermine their objective. So you take Dickens. And Dickens plucks at the heartstrings. He hates poverty. He detests child labor. And yet he describes these problems in terms of the individual suffering, especially of mothers and children. And in a lot of these British authors' scenarios, they don't really pay much attention to the guys. The guys are often the ones that push mothers and children into poverty. And what's interesting about that is it leads to a set of political solutions that's organized around charity rather than social investment. And so I see these authors, these Victorian authors, these Victorian social reformers, have these heartbreaking novels that are so wonderful to read. 
and they're so ardently passionate about trying to change things and yet the the set of arguments that might actually come through and convince people they don't really touch upon in fact the only place you find these arguments in Britain are the conservative manufacturers who just want to improve worker skills and so they have a that those are the guys by the way who want to do vocational training and it's the progressives it's the Fabians it's the world uh, it's the kind of Morris Ruskins who want to have uh, a uniform secondary education so that the working class <coughs> isn't pushed into this uh, two-tiered system. So I think that the language at, at the level of the cultural constraint, it undermines the best intention. So it kind of gets outside of intentionality. And it's something that I can observe across time. So I think that there's something there. But I think you're absolutely right. You've got to be careful about causal arguments. Thank you so much, Kathy. That's really exciting and inspiring talk. Makes me want to go back to doing law and literature. Um, I have two, two quick questions. The first is that you mentioned Rousseau's Emile in passing. Can you speak just, up a little bit, Nikki? Yeah. You mentioned Rousseau's Emile in passing. Yeah. And I just wondered, as a matter of interest, whether you saw much coming out about women's education, and if so, whether there were interesting differences between the, what was coming out of the two from the two countries. Um, the second question has to do with the origins of the novel in these two countries. I mean, you obviously only talked about a few examples, but I speak with caution because there may well be people here who know a lot more about the history of the English novel than I do. But as I understand it, part of the very marked didacticism of the English novel right from the late 17th century on had to do with, with its origins in criminal autobiography, which was a sort of popular genre. So very individualistic, very moralized, uh, but also very, very didactic. Um, what are the origins that the examples you gave of Danish literature sounded more like a sort of folk, um, as so the derivation was in folk literature? And I wondered if that's true, and if so, whether that, those different origins themselves tell us something interesting about the, the long-run cultural and institutional differences between these countries. Well, so thank you so much, Nikki, for those questions. Uh, first of all, Emil, I think, is fascinating because it's, uh, it's popular in both Britain and Denmark, but they take very different lessons from it. And so the manifestation of Emil in Britain is much more on the kind of individual self-actualization part of it, whereas in Denmark, uh, they, it, it's, it's viewed in a more collective way and they really emphasize the learning by doing and uh, uh, that aspect of it. So in, in, in Britain, it kind of feeds into some of these discussions about curriculum theory, which are going on way back in the uh, early 18th century, uh, 19th century even. Um, the origins of this, these cultural differences, I think, are fascinating. You're absolutely right that the novel is first invented in Britain. And I think, you know, Ian Watts talks about that. And I think it has to do with uh, the kind of this, these British sensibilities, because novels presuppose, um, you know, you were asked about plays. Novels presuppose much more internal life. And in a sense, that internal life is a very individualistic thing. And I think that's partly why British novels of this period are a lot easier <coughs> to read than Danish novels, because they're so psychologically 
sophisticated. Um, but the and so, so for a while, the Danes are making something more akin to prose fiction than novels, and the novels come a bit later. The origins of these cultural differences, I have thought about a lot, and uh, I actually think what is fascinating is that all these Danish authors that I've read uh, refer to the old Nordic myths, and the old Nordic myths are used strategically at times by people like Holberg and uh, Bernhard Ingermann and Grundy and uh, Olentleyer and all of these Danish authors as a way of trying to build sentiments for a strong society and a strong state, by the way. So uh, these, these concepts are pretty connected. Uh, in Britain, a lot of the references are to the Greek myths and the Roman myths. And so, you know, Ode to a Grecian Urn kind of stuff. And there, it's a much more individualistic set of cultural touchstones. So I've wondered sometimes if these cultural touchstones at the two poles of Europe um, are pretty important to how authors and countries define their national identities. Uh, I'd love to do work in this area. And uh, in fact, the, the Danish version of Beowulf is hysterical because Beowulf, unlike being the great hero, this is in the the Grenda saga, Beowulf is this uh, kind of individualistic guy who's overly proud, which is a big no-no in Denmark, <laughs> and uh, and kind of. They like the fact that he saves them, but, but they all grumble a lot about him all the time. So kind of very different, very different character. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much. Um, I've worked um, with Danish public servants on various international programs, often when they've been a very major part of a wider Scandinavian bulk, which uh -huh. tends to very heavily in the overall headcount. What you've described about education and society explains an awful lot. I recognize an awful lot. Thank My um, question is, um, do you see that, and this is a serious, I'm not being facetious, do you see the recent um, popularity of Scandinoir novels as a reflection of growing concern in Scandinavia at the stress or get on the welfare state from glo globalization. I can't help wonder if Danske Bank and its sister's Swedbank scandal may have had a lot to do with the pressure to conform, not yeah. to rock the boat. Thank you. Well, the yeah, no, I absolutely think there. Uh, so I I give a fair number of talks in Denmark, and uh, and I I gave one at Copenhagen Business School um, in March. I gave the keynote at this conference, and I kind of ended by saying that I think the problems in Denmark right now don't have to do with immigrants. They don't have to do with. Uh, uh, even rising inequality is not that bad there, they do have to do with neoliberalism. Because neoliberalism is very undanish. 
in a way. And they've gotten, they, 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 there's all this emphasis now in education policy in Denmark on trying to conform to PISA ideas. And, uh, and, and all these students are going to gymnasium who ought to be going into vocational training. And uh, they've, they've been failing miserably at it. And, and so now there's this big effort to kind of uh, revoke vocational training again and improve it. Um, and it's been a very upsetting time in the Danish uh, mental kind of gestalt. And, and uh, the Social Democratic Party is in some ways trying to take back the night a little bit, uh, take, um, take power away from the Danish Folk Party, because the Danish Folk Party was the only party in Denmark that was really talking about these traditional society uh, norms, but they were talking about it from this really uh, awful anti-immigrant perspective. So I don't think having a strong society means you have to be anti-immigrant. It just means that you kind of celebrate the collective. And um, and I really think that Denmark is start more, more and more people are starting to see that, and I think the tide is changing a little bit. In terms of Scandinavian noir, I'm a complete sucker for that stuff, so let's talk after this. <laughs> I love it. But, uh, but that's a really interesting <coughs> question, because um, I, was in, I was actually living in Denmark when Olaf Palma got, uh, got assassinated, and somebody I knew told me that it must be somebody from the outside, because no Scandinavian would uh, commit a political assassination. Which I just thought was uh, oh. was uh, you know incredibly racist and but uh, um, in, on many levels. But there is this sense that uh, the Danes feel like they have this strong society and everybody can conforms to norms and these and I think you're right that there's kind of these these noir things and the story about this guy in the submarine last year that's starting to shake people up a lot and I think you know what they're trying to do now are more and more and more programs to make sure that everybody's integrated um, in a better way but they have a ways to go with that Deborah I, I think my my question follows a bit you know, you have such a great setup here of um, a, a kind of uniform, more single-track education system leading to inequality, and a multi-track system apparently leading to equality. But I, I just wonder if the outcomes aren't a bit um, more contingent than you're kind of building into your analysis. So you you use individualism to kind of explain the paradox, but they are contingent, aren't they, in the sense that you know, one reason why these changes have happened in Denmark is that the multi-track system has not been producing good outcomes for those who go to the technical schools, uh, partly because that structure was built on a, 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 an industrial model and there's been a lot of change in the available employment opportunities. And conversely... I think it's not always the case that single-track systems produce inequality. Um, that also depends on... It's also rather contingent, isn't it? I mean, it depends quite a lot on the structure of, of opportunities in that economy and society. So I'm just a bit concerned that your argument is a bit, is a bit over-determined 
So, so I, I'm going to push back a little bit on that, Deborah, because um, so I, I have the end, the final chapter of the book is going to be kind of the modern period and implications. And um, so I did some research with uh, uh, Kristen Jensen, and we found that countries with vocational education and training is a big part of the uh, the school curricula had much higher levels, significantly higher levels of equality. Then, and, and I'm sorry, significantly lower levels of NEETs or young people dropping out of school, neither in employment or education training. We didn't do it with equality. And we also found that countries with higher, and, and that's, by the way, something that's been found in other studies as well, is that there's, the literature is pretty, pretty uh, there's a lot of consensus that the more vocational education you have, the less youth unemployment you have and the fewer needs you have. Uh, we also found that countries with more uh, uniform curricula and uh, tying test scores to uh, funding, et cetera, all of this kind of no child left behind liberal ideas, that was also associated. The more of those you had, the more students you had dropping out of school. So I think that, I think it's not just Denmark versus Britain. I mean, I think what I'm doing is I'm adding this, this kind of cultural aspect to it of where these things come from. But I really do think that countries that don't train their young people in vocational education and training are having more problems. Denmark is having a lot of problems because it bought into this PISA line. But like Switzerland, for example, which hasn't tried to change its formula, or Finland, which is not, both of those countries are doing great. And they both have very high levels of, um, continuing high levels of vocational training. Switzerland has 65% of its students in some kind of vocational or technical training. And it's, it works great. So I think, and they're also trying to shift it so that they find new ways of adapting to kind of service sector. So that their vocational training doesn't just have to be for old industrial sectors. Perhaps I, could I just quickly, I mean, maybe maybe the real issue here is about it, about a kind of single order of value versus a multiple order. And so, you know, the things you're talking about to do with set test scores and and a uniform curriculum and so on have put in place in this country a, a kind of single order of value. But that hasn't always been the case. I mean, and, and a unified education system do, doesn't necessarily have to have a single order of value in it, I think. Um, so maybe it's a slightly different interpretation of what's driving it, but I can certainly see that if you have only... Uh, a single rating of, of good or bad or achievement and non-achievement, then that's obviously an engine of inequality in, in, some, yeah. in some way. So, yeah, anyway. We probably agree on that. Push, push the microphone forward, yes. Yes, thank you. That was a um, fantastic grand, grand uh, sweep through, through literature and history. <clears throat> so my, but my question, I have lots of big questions, but I'll keep to two smaller questions. Um, one, I'm not Scottish, but I'm wondering... You talk about British literature, yeah. uh, and of course, the period you're talking about Irish literature was also part of Britain. So, I wondered if you would find differences if you segregated the English from from other, because what you seem to be talking about is mainly English literature rather than British literature. Yeah. Um, 
The other question is, to me, there's sort of a triangle here with a bit missing in a way, which is children's literature, because if it's, if it's literature and education, then the way that's expressed through children's literature in two countries with such strong traditions of children's literature, there would be a lot of potential for triangulation in, yeah. uh, in, in, in every sense uh, with, uh, with doing the same thing on children's books. Yeah, so, so uh, to, to do the children's literature, so I do include some children's literature. I mean, Black Beauty's in there, for example. And, um, so if they make the list, then they get included. Uh, and so the experts are the ones that, um, that make the list for the most, I mean, the experts are the ones that make the list. So I, I try to, you know, Alice in Wonderland's in there. I think, I think that's... Uh, so, so I I do pay attention to ch- children's literature, and also I do. I mean, some people like Sarah Tremor was extremely. She was this children's writer at the beginning of the 19th century, and she was extremely important in the National Society Church movement. And so, you, you get a number of, uh, of children's authors who were really in, important in the education movements. Um, the Irish and Scottish issue is very interesting. So I do include some Irish books and I haven't broken them out, but I feel like the there's a lot more collective sentiment than in Britain. Uh, I mean, as, as, so in Scotland, you know, in Scotland's not that far from Norway, uh, I, I feel like there's a draw, there's just kind of more collectivist stuff. But I mainly, it's just mainly an England story. I apologize. Well, I think um, we'd probably bring this to an end. And thank you so, so much. And you can see from the, the interest in the questions which were, were being asked how much everyone really appreciated your talk and the answers to the questions. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me.